In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Here on Notably Disney, it's a substantial honor to talk with some of Hollywood's most notable and versatile composers who have left their mark on projects within the Walt Disney Company. Today I'm talking with composer and orchestrator Joseph Trapanese, who you've likely heard via his work for films like 2019's Lady and the Tramp, Tron Legacy, and The Greatest Showman, among others. He's such a humble and gifted person whose continued engagement in learning new musical techniques has propelled him to amazing heights. Here's some further info on Joe during my introduction and consequently our interview. In just over the past decade, Joseph Trapanese has made his mark in Hollywood with electric scores, orchestrations, and arrangements for popular films. Very notably, his orchestration for Tron Legacy, composed by Daft Punk, has been recognized by the film community as one of the best scores in recent years. I'd consider it one of my favorites as well. He is, he is the composer behind Hollywood hits, including Oblivion and Only the Brave. I absolutely love that one. Uh, Co-composed The Greatest Showman with uh, John Debney, who was a past notably Disney guest, among other scores. For Disney, he's done um, a mix of work in recent years, including the score for the television series Tron Uprising. Um, that was a gem. And the 2019 iteration of Lady and the Tramp. His experiences are vast in such a relatively short period of time, and it's always dynamic to listen to his scores as part of my playlists. So I appreciate your time here today. Welcome to Notably Disney, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's, it's so humbling hearing that because... You know, that's been one of my goals since uh, becoming a musician, becoming a composer and arranger is just getting uh, a tool set together that could bridge a wide range of genres and uh, mediums. And so when I hear you say, you know, talk about, you know, how I've had this broad set of experience across many uh, different types of films and projects, it's it's very humbling and, and very satisfying. I'm very proud of that. 
Well, we have a lot to cover, I have no doubt, because we have to, just in that those few sentences, uh, a variety of different projects mentioned, but I'd like to familiarize uh, listeners a little bit um, with your background. And, um, and I've um, been on my end, uh, definitely doing some studying and learning more about you through podcasts and interviews, but I'd like to, listeners to learn a little bit more about your background in music. I know it stemmed from an early age. Uh, can you talk about that journey and and in particular scores or types of music that resonated with you growing up? Absolutely. Yeah, there there were, you know, there are definitely many things that make my journey very unique. At the same time, I also like saying that, you know, my journey is somewhat typical, going to music conservatory, coming to LA, being an intern and kind of getting my sea legs, so to speak. But I was very fortunate that my parents wanted music to be a part of my life at an early age, even though they weren't musicians, they were school teachers. And uh, I, I jokingly say, although it's 100% true, my entire family is teachers, and I'm, I'm the weirdo who moved to Hollywood. So, uh, you know, I feel so fortunate to be surrounded by amazing teachers, teaching is such a, uh, an important goal, important, or, or I should say an important thing for humanity. So, uh, you know, it, it humbles me thinking about, you know, I'm the weirdo who came to Hollywood. But yes, I was very fortunate to get piano lessons when I was young. And really, two of the key things were, I quit piano for a while, I just wasn't having fun. I was a, a bratty kid who wanted to play video games. But uh, my friends were in the band in school, so I actually started playing trombone. And to hang out with my friends, I would go to the music room and I would hang out there. And uh, I would I, I even went to summer band camps to hang out with my friends. And it, it was it was really just uh, a side effect that I fell in love with music. And um, I remember the and and I guess the second part of that the second side of that coin so to speak is when i was about 13 or so my uncle lent me the vhs for star wars i'd never seen star wars i'd you know i was just curious what it was and i watched it and i just remember saying you know what is this music i'm here i've never heard music like this um and that sent me down the next part of my rabbit hole journey which was learning about the orchestra, learning how to use the orchestra. And actually there was a, a period of time where I was just so focused on classical composition, modern classical composition. You know, I was thinking maybe I'd become a teacher or maybe I'd, I'd, uh, you know, explore modern music in that way. But when it came time to finish college, I, I realized that, uh, again, being from a family full of teachers that, um, I was very humbled by, the amazing teachers I had in college and I couldn't really, uh, and that was Manhattan school of music, by the way, I, I couldn't imagine myself being good enough to do what they did. They were just these incredible professors who could stand in front of the room and, and recite, you know, Bach and Stravinsky. And just, they had all these, this knowledge about it that I was slowly attaining for myself, but not on the level they, they had. So I was, I, I said, okay, what do I want to do? I want I need to make money somehow. <laughs> so uh, I reconnected with uh, my roots, which was that, you know, hey, I, film music got me into this thing. Maybe I can be a film composer. And I spent some time in LA driving around. You know, I rented a car. I drove around. I said, oh, LA is a cool place. And I, I met some faculty at USC and UCLA to kind of just uh, – you know, get to know them and, and get to know about those programs. I actually did some grad work at UCLA. Very proud of that. Um, and then I just started, yeah, I just started interning in studios. And it was there that, you know, I, I realized that, you know, my skill set was really 
kind of perfect for what modern film music composition was. And something I didn't mention earlier was because of, you know, my love of computers when I was younger and uh, because of, you know, when I was growing up, computers were becoming more accessible. I just started making music in the computer just because that that felt natural to me. That was just something that one did in a computer. There wasn't any thought behind it like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, this is the tool of which, you know, music can be made. It just so happened that I was the weird kid, even in college, I was the weird kid making music on his laptop um, when all the other students were kind of just sitting at the piano writing scores. And I value that very much. I'm looking at a handwritten score right now on, on my music stand that I, I was sketching out a theme idea. It's very important to me. But at the same time, that ability to work in the computer combined with the ability to work with an orchestra, work with musicians, do music preparation, that sort of thing. It just was a, and, and still is a key skill set to being a film composer because, uh, you know, I would love to work like John Williams. I would love to sit at the piano and just write with my hands and, you know, write a beautiful score and just hear it played live by an orchestra and then I'm done. But, uh, you know, I'm under no illusions that that is a verified thing. And, and, and the modern film composer is just as much a music producer as is an electronic musician. So anyway, I answered your question in a really long way, Brett. I hope you don't mind. But I want to give your audience a really clear background of, you know, just you know, what makes me who I am, how I got here. <laughs> no, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And and I think that's what was in, in me learning more about your story and, and you summarizing it so uh, wonderfully just now. What really I was drawn to is that you have this foundation in classical music, but the experimentation associated with, you know, playing with music on computers is really um, illustrative of music in the digital age and this new generation of composers bringing that particular um, edge and, and dynamic. So it's accounting for different styles and different mechanisms for translating music, which I think is a really unique quality of yours and, and ultimately reflective of the age that we live in. Absolutely. I, you know, it, it, it is uh, undeniable now how Computers have changed every industry under the sun and uh, film music is no different and filmmaking in general is no different. You know, I, I remember a, a film where I was fortunate enough to get, you know, flown to London recording the best musicians in the world and Abbey Road, you know, you're doing this amazing thing and you fly back and the film's re-edited and I had to rewrite a bunch of music and redo a bunch of stuff and write a new ending and, you know, that that is what digital technology brings. It's both great and terrible, and it just all comes down to you, the 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 user of this technology, whether you're the editor or the director or the composer. Um, it comes down to the artist using the technology of how they're going to use it for for good or or for you know tweaking everything until the very end. So luckily, I'm very fortunate that fortunate that the majority of my projects ha have wonderful collaborators that use the technology for the better. And to be clear, sometimes for the better means re-editing the film up until the very end. Sometimes the mysteries of art you know make themselves known in the twelfth hour. So so it, it, that is the interesting thing, right? No matter how digital it gets, there is an art to it. There's a humanity to it. I'm a firm believer in that, uh, that that's what makes, uh, what we do unique. 
Absolutely. And I'd like to harken back to something that you mentioned a few minutes ago that I think actually bridges a couple of uh, talking points, and, and that's the notion of educators. And as I was thinking about um, learning about your career and ultimately um, what I think is really a nice trend that I've seen in the film composing world is the notion of mentorship and being surrounded by individuals who are um, leaders and, and, and shaping the next generation of composers. And I know you talked about um, professors, um, but you've also really worked with some um, fellow well-trained talents in the field of film composing. Could you talk about how they have influenced your career um, and, and eventually allowed you to um, develop your own craft? Absolutely. It's, it's, it really is uh, something special what we have here in Hollywood. And, you know, some people can complain about, you know, the way Hollywood churns through young talent, uh, seemingly casting them aside when, you know, they've been used up or something. But I, I try to look on the positive side of internships and whatnot, because that experience that you get, I remember my first week in a professional music studio. Um, and, uh, I learned more from the studio manager of that studio than, you know, an entire semester of college, just because you're in, you're in it. You are truly in the zone. There's no substitute to being at the show, so to speak. And so I remember just being so thankful to, you know, Oh, Joe, go get, you know, go get the Starbucks order. Yes, sir. Cause I knew when I was coming back, there was going to be a session and I was going to be there and I was going to observe how the producer and the composer interacted with the musicians. So, you know, it really is a priceless, priceless opportunity to be able to be in Hollywood and, and, and experience that. And to, and more to your point, you know, uh, about that mentorship, you know, there's just so many things we're never going to learn in school. School is fantastic and there's no substitute for it. But I would argue sometimes, depending on what background you have, on what type of mentorship you have, maybe it might be a good idea not to go to college and to just go straight into working in this industry. I'm, I guess I, you, you might say I'm very well educated. I have a master's degree, but I don't talk about that at all because it doesn't really matter to what I do. What matters to what I do is, am I able to deliver on time, deliver great art, deliver something right? And a lot of that comes down to uh, on the job training. I'll never forget the first time I, I was doing a video game um, scoring a video game as a composer, <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, called up one of my former mentors who I worked with for many years, uh, Daniel Licht, who unfortunately is no longer with us. He passed away several years ago, very quickly due to a, a terrible rare cancer. And it, it's such a shame. I, I think all the time about Dan because he was such a, a wonderful mentor of mine, Daniel Licht. Uh, and uh, I called him up. I said, hey, Dan, I know you just started getting into video games and I'm just lost. I'm having trouble like figuring out how to deliver, how to get these guys happy. And he gave me key advice. Like he said to me, you know, Joe, video games, you have to keep in mind a lot of the people running video games are programmers. They're not necessarily uh, filmmakers or directors. So you have to interact with them differently than you might interact with a filmmaker. And so just through those few sentences, he changed the way I thought about something. And that is just one little story about one 
mentorship is out here, right? There are so many, you know, Bruce, you mentioned Bruce Broughton, who I consider a mentor. Uh, there's so many levels and layers to all these mentorships that, you know, they're just gifts that keep on giving throughout your life. You know, I, I just spoke with Bruce the other day via email and we were talking about new certain new technologies and Sibelius and notation. And, you know, it just really is that sort of thing is really key. It's and it's just as much friendship as it is mentorship. The idea of you come to L.A., you get to know the community and that community, you become part of that community and you help each other move forward in that community. That's such a beautiful thing. And and what I appreciate about what you shared, um, especially in your earlier days of your career, and it sounds like this spirit still carries with you, is the openness to learn. And even if you're not necessarily the the main individual, um, the, the composer or the, the person that kind of uh, at the top of the hierarchy, that desire in wanting to learn from others, wanting to just understand the process. And it sounds like that's really carried you throughout your career, this desire to um, just absorb information and, and enable that to guide you in your body of knowledge as a, as a musician. Every single day, you know, I talk a lot about um, <clears throat> filmmaking as, you know, it's both super subjective in the sense that, you know, you play the same piece of music for 10 different people. You have, you know, 10 different, slightly different emotions or vastly different emotions, perhaps. Um, and, but in the same way, you know, filmmaking was also very objective. You know, I'm, I'm in my studio right now looking at the TV. There's a film on that TV and we are all watching that film at the end of the day. There's, and there is the, the, the basic truth of my job is, I have to make, help the filmmaker achieve the emotion and the affect that they want. And if I don't do that, I fail. So, <laughs> so because what I do is so subjective, I view it as my job to learn what the filmmaker is trying to achieve, what my collaborators are trying to achieve, because not only am I going to learn, you know, how to make this film better, I'm just going to learn how to do my job better, period. It's, it's just a constant progression forward. And something I talk a lot about, I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, you know, the idea where I've been a, a collaborator to other artists and other composers, you know, I, people talk to me, oh, what was it like to work with Daft Punk? And, you know, I'm thinking it was so awesome because I learned so much from them, you know, and, and I, yes, I was hired to kind of teach them quote unquote on how to score a film and how to work with an orchestra. But at the end of the day, I'm learning just as much as they're learning, perhaps even more. So, you know, how fortunate I was that I got paid to learn, you know, with Daft Punk. How amazing. <laughs> that's great. And well, I think that's a very natural transition to talking about Tron Legacy, um, which I think any any conversation about your body of work, it'd be very incomplete if there wasn't at least some reference to this, because um, not only was it just a monumental film for, I think, just the industry, um, but also in terms of it's just an incredible score. And and I know in learning uh, more that about Tron Legacy and its development in terms of the score that you and Daft Punk were basically developing the score before the script was written, um, which is quite unusual in Hollywood. And I guess I'm just curious in terms of what that process looks like, since that's very much the antithesis to how a lot of film score projects unfold. Absolutely. I, 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 it's interesting. I try to approach every film that I work on as early as possible so that I can let the ideas develop and gestate naturally because, 
you know, it, there's nothing worse than, you know, coming onto a film and having six or eight weeks to develop these huge ideas. Now, don't get me wrong. I do that all the time. And it really is an art in and of itself to spend eight weeks with a film and try to create something profound. And I'm very proud when I'm able to do that. At the same time, you know, when we do have time to let ideas gestate, I do feel that, you know, we could really reach something a little bit more profound, um, something a little bit deeper, a little bit more under the skin. So I try to approach every film I do as, as soon as possible. And that, that is due to the, me, you know, uh, learning so much on that Tron legacy process that, you know, here were artists um, who were so moved by the idea of Tron and the idea of that original film when they first saw it as, as, as children that when it came time to make a new Tron and they were found themselves in, you know, in the small circle of people who could potentially work on it, that they were so invested in the idea of Tron that they poured everything they had into it from the beginning. Um, and so that really is where, you know, in a nutshell sums up, you know, exactly what happened. You know, there were, there were outlines, there were ideas. I, I, I don't, I don't think, trying to remember when we first read the script. I don't remember exactly when it was, but we had already been working for several months. I remember, you know, the delivery coming to the studio in a big, thick envelope, the script for Daft Punk to read. And I think I later went to read it at Disney. Like I had to like go in and read it while sitting in a room. They wouldn't let me have a copy of it. So, you know, the idea that we were on so early that, you know, there was that type of security, but, um, but, you know, I, I say, you know, you, you hire a director that soon, you hire a production designer that soon. Why not hire the composer that soon so the music can be a part of that? And I, I really do believe that one of the reasons why that score and the aesthetic of Tron Legacy, I know I know box office wise it was kind of a moderate success. It definitely did not make the billions of dollars that Disney wants to make, you know, now with Marvel and Star Wars. But I do feel it was such an artistically resonant film because of that because we started so early and we established a certain pace and aesthetic that uh we collaborated with the editor i, re I remember meeting the editor james haygood very early on being at test screenings with him and just having this you know sometimes you know you do not have that relationship with the editor sometimes you know you're siloed off so the ability to you know to work with the person who is setting helps set the who's helping to set the pace of the film uh, is priceless as well. So uh, yeah, I think that's one reason why, or probably the reason why that film was so aesthetically pleasing is that there were all these people, all these great creative artists working together from a very early point in lockstep with each other and communicating with each other. And, you know, a lot of that comes down to Joe Kaczynski communicating his ideas um, being inspired, inspiring the people around them. And same with Daft Punk. They inspired something in me um, as a colleague of theirs that, you know, I wouldn't have been able to achieve on my own. <laughs> so, yes, I, I, it was a little, uh, it was lightning in a bottle, you could say, definitely. And I'd love to dive in a bit more um, and hopefully uh, cover some talking points that uh, haven't been asked of you in the past, because I know, understandably, this is a, a big project. I, I guess I'm curious in terms of what collaboration looks like for you on an, an endeavor like this, where you, you are serving the, as the orchestrator. You mentioned that in many ways you were teaching them um, about you know developing the score. 
in this process, you, you collectively delivered some really incredible themes and, um, and just, just a very um, palpable feel in terms of just very evocative, um, very electric and energetic. There's so many adjectives I could use to describe the score, but, but I guess the general takeaway is that it's just, um, there's a, a kinetic feeling to it. And I think that's by virtue of the collaboration. So what I guess my question is, how did you collectively work in developing those very distinct themes, whether it's the father and son theme or the game has changed some of those signature cues? Absolutely. The, I, uh, the, the scary thing, I think back at it, you know, I have very vivid memories of hearing each little thematic nugget, you could say, the first time, you know, just coming out of, you know, one of Daft Punk's laptops, you know, that, you know, they, everything you hear in the movie, more or less, there might be, I th I'm trying to think of exactly which ones, there might be a couple that were more or less written uh, closer to the film than others, but almost all the ideas were gestated with Daft Punk in you know, earlier in Paris on a, in their studio or on their laptop. So by the time they got to Hollywood, they had all these seeds to plant, you could say. So I remember the clue theme, for instance, was just a logic session with four tracks of synthesizers. And those are those sounds that, you know, those electronic sounds, those sounds, you know, for clue existed, you know, in a little logic session, four tracks. And I heard those sounds and I said, oh, you know, this is this is great. I, I immediately started hearing different ways of expanding on those sounds orchestrally. And this is something that I like talking about, the idea that Daft Punk didn't just say, hey, we're just going to score a film. Joe, here, take these ideas and, and run with it. They built a studio. They rented a studio at, at Henson Recording Studios in, in L.A., rented a studio for, for the full two years that we were going to be on the film. And built, you know, bought computers, built a proper composing studio um, with samples. And, uh, and you know, we set to work nine to five every day, basically, you know, like I hate to make it sound so boring, but, you know, they just worked hard and we worked together. And so what was phenomenal was, you know, of course, to do a mock-up, I might take, you know, oh, I'm going to take this weekend to execute this theme or I'm going to work these, you know, Monday, Tuesday. Um, so maybe they're not going to bother me for a day or two so I could flesh out this mock-up because just that sort of programming takes time. But then they would come to the studio and sit right next to me and we would listen to it and we'd talk about it and they would t tell me what they liked and didn't like and give me notes. And so it wasn't, you know, I've had, uh, you know, some experience with collaborators where it's much more standoffish. I get something, I do something to it. I send it back to them. You know, a few days later, some notes come back. I try something else. Um, you know, that sort of thing where we're just not together and it shows when you're not together, I think, you know, but, but, you know, luckily the majority of my film, uh, collaborations have been, the opposite of that have been, you know, these two-way streets. And and Daft Punk, that one is exceptional for that, that they really said we are becoming film composers for this. We are not going to just be diva artists sitting here. We are going to listen to notes from the filmmaker, listen to notes from Disney. You know, I have very good memories of the of Mitchell Lieb who just who just retired. He's he's he truly is one of a kind music executive, music supervisor. 
um, and, and talking about mentors, a great mentor of mine, but I have, sh- I have sharp memories of him in the studio with, with, uh, Daft Punk and me and our engineer, Dan of him saying, Oh, you know, this, is the end of this queue, ah, maybe there could be a theme. Can you play the theme over the end of it? I remember, okay, sitting down like, Oh, let me play a string line playing the Tron theme, you know? So it, those memories are something that are so special to me. I wish I took, I had a journal so I could, you know, really write a book one day, but these are all just loose memories that you're helping me collect in this podcast. And, and for instance, that Tron theme was, that came out of, you know, uh, Thomas, uh, one of the members of Daft Punk handed me a wave file. He said, Hey, I have this synthesizer in the studio that I was playing with that I was jamming on. I think there's something really cool in here. Can you like, work with it for a little bit and and pick out some melodies. And in that jam that he was doing on the synthesizer was the Tron theme was just that da da oh, sorry <coughs> excuse me. Da 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 na you know just that that theme was in there and I just helped harmonize it a little bit and there you go. There's the theme. You know so I hate to make it sound so easy, but because Daft Punk was just so on it in terms of connecting with the the thematic resonances of the film and and of the original film and of their tools which was the electronic studio the synthesizer the, you, you know these it really felt like water you know especially looking back on it yes there were plenty of challenges and lots of notes and lots of deadlines and problems and issues just like any other film but out of most of the films I've worked on, Tron was actually surprisingly easy um, for that reason because there was something inspired there that we could all – and that's what I meant earlier when I said, you know, we're all looking at this piece of art and we're all trying to get around it and make something cool. And so there was something inarguably cool about this music they were creating. And so we just had to make sure to develop it properly and develop the film properly and – and then you have Tron Legacy. So, yeah, I'm knocking on wood. I was very lucky to have that experience. Well, you've all delivered for sure. And I think, and I remember talking with Bruce Broughton about this when we were discussing his work for um, the Homeward Bound films, which I, I loved growing up. And and I said to Bruce, you know, what what makes a film so powerful is not just the visuals on screen, the the mood and, and emotion associated with the script and the narrative and how it's unfolding, but it's the music that's complementary that can really bring it to another level. And when I think about um, characters I connect with and visuals on screen that just are entrancing, Tron Legacy certainly comes to mind, but it would not be complete without that score. And I guess I'm wondering from you, Joe, considering that you all were working on the score so early on in the process, when there were when there was actually footage, how did how did that influence the development of the score in terms of different approaches you all took with themes or um, the orchestration? That is a great question, and and uh, there's a lot in there about you know Joe Kaczynski. You know <laughs> Joe Kaczynski is. I think he is someone who comes to the table with such a narrow, in a good way, such a a narrow vision that he's, I want to achieve this. He's able to make very clear from the beginning what he's trying to achieve. And so you as a collaborator, you know, you have a much narrower target to hit, which is both good and bad, right? Because 
it's good because he's able to inspire you and get you to join in this vision. You know, it's very clear what he's trying to achieve. But it's also a much narrower target to hit. So there, you know, there are times where I, you know, I've worked, I've had the great fortune, like you said, only the brave oblivion to work on a majority of his films, and just the idea that, um, you know, I have to thread this needle <laughs> over and over again is very hard. But it's also it's also a great challenge in that, or excuse me, it's also a great honor to be able to to do that because I think he really encapsulates something that. Uh, Wagner spoke about, which, you know, love or hate Wagner, obviously Wagner is a very controversial figure, rightfully so, but uh, there's a concept he had that I think is really cool, um, and I'm not going to try to say it in German because I will embarrass myself, especially because I'm part German, and so I'll embarrass part of my family, but <laughs> it, it basically translates to total art music, that what Wagner was trying to achieve with building his opera house and designing the opera house and designing, you know, helping, you know, direct the operas and helping come up with the props and the costumes was he wanted the artwork to speak as a whole, not as a series of disparate elements coming together. Oh, there's the music and now throw some costumes and throw some fog in and throw some singing on top and you have opera. No, he wanted the audience to his operas to sit there and just be enveloped by this world he was creating and i think that's exactly you know what what joe uh, can achieve in his films you know is you are just enveloped in this experience and i think that says a lot about you know his technical aptitude about you know knowing how to use camera and perspective and 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 lighting and and music and sound to achieve that because it really comes down to dozens and dozens and if not thousands of disparate elements you know coming together to to develop that picture so musically to get specific about the tron score i'll, I'll give you a, for for instance we um when we first saw the light bike scene or you know and, by, and i should use this word saw loosely when we saw it you know it's just previous it's just it's just you know it looked worse than the original film, you know, because it's just, you know, uh, and in the corner, you'd see the actors with dots on their faces. You know, you'd see them kind of reacting the the shots they were going to use of the actors to plant onto the animated light bikes or the visual effects, digital light bikes. And so, uh, you know, we had thought it was so compelling without music that um we wanted it to be without music just like the original film if you if you can remember the original film there's no music and it was is one of the rare instances where we spoke about the original film um uh, because we wanted to separate ourselves from that original film and make sure that we didn't feel um you know like just a uh we wanted Tron Legacy to feel like its own thing so to speak and we wanted to feel very timeless and uh and I guess current in a way but um you know, when Disney and Joe said, no, we want you to, we think we want you to score this, you know, that's when things got really interesting with using electronics and the orchestra together. And um, especially in terms of manipulating the orchestra, manipulating the drums, and we actually used a lot of bit crushing devices and different filters and looping and, and kind of de-resing kind of these weird uh glitchy plugins and glitchy analog boxes to help uh 
kind of give us the musical de-resolution that the characters were experiencing, so to speak, on screen. I know that sounds a little crazy, but if you listen to that scene, you could hear, especially in the drums, obviously, I think that's the most obvious, where that there's this, you know, this de-resolution, so to speak, of the analog drums becoming digital and getting taken apart, so to speak. So I think that's a really clear example of kind of that two-way street between music and visuals. I appreciate that example. And I think that level of inventiveness that is definitive of the score also translates to your work in composing the short-lived but really great spinoff uh, series for uh, Disney XD, which was Tron Uprising. Can you talk um, briefly at least about having the really great responsibility of carrying that flavor from the film but into a television context and ultimately with you as the as the composer in retrospect i was the luckiest guy on the planet i mean i i didn't know it at the time but yeah man i was the luckiest guy on the planet to get that show because i think you you know you know something that i'm truly passionate about as an artist as a musician is the development of great ideas. You know, I want to be able to take a simple idea and develop it further. And I think, you know, Tron Legacy, there were so many incredible musical ideas and sounds and um, just nuggets of gold, so to speak, that I thought that I'm so lucky that A, you know, there was the show that allowed us to explore it. And the director of that show, Charlie Bean, who actually directed (laughs) Lady and the Tramp as well, um, and that Charlie and, and, and the executives at Disney uh, Animation, like Jay Stutler, Mark Karofilis, they blessed us by saying, yes, we want you to continue that. Um, but in our own unique way, adding new sounds, new color. For instance, electric guitar was a huge part of the show, and there wasn't a single guitar in the film. So, you know, it was this amazing opportunity to develop the sound but to try something new. And then also, I mean, my goodness, Daft Punk blessed me. They said, yes, take the sounds, take the palette we created. I mean, that was Daft Punk creating that palette. And they said, yes, we bless you. (laughs) You're going to be able to move forward with that. Take the sound. So I was producing that score with the same plugins and sounds and samples and, and same exact tools we had on the film. And so how lucky was I able to develop that? I think that's something that... I hope that um, Disney in the future and movies in the future in general can do more. For instance, you know, Marvel and Star Wars, we have these opportunities to develop sounds and ideas further. And I feel that there have been quite a few missed opportunities, unfortunately, where, you know, a composer does a Marvel film and, and does something cool. And then a different composer comes in and does something different. And there's no continuation of style or idea or theme or, you know, and I know that, yes, that's wrong. Alan has done Alan's um, the amazing Alan Silvestri has done many of them and it's had continued themes, but not quite in the same way with all the crazy offshoots that Marvel has. But anyway, back to the subject again, luckiest guy on the planet that I was able to really, develop what we did on the film and develop it further. And, and uh, I think that's the reason why Tron Uprising has this cult following because they were so moved by the film they carried into the show. And then they were so moved by the show that they're hungry for more. I mean, I feel like we could develop those ideas 
even further. But, you know, alas, here we are, you know, 10 years on and, you know, I'm not sure where, where Tron stands in the Disney uh, Rubicon <laughs> or whatnot. But, you know, it is a ride. So so for those of you who could go to Shanghai um, when it is safe to do so, go on the Disney Tron ride because that is somewhere else where I did the same exact thing. I took what we did on Tron blessed by Daft Punk, blessed by Disney that allowed me um, to move forward. You know, I think that's the beautiful thing about that, that idea. The beautiful thing about collaboration is that there's no 100% owner of this idea. This idea is just being carried forward and, and, uh, and developing and, and you'll hear some new developing thing, new unique things about the Tron ride that don't exist in, in Tron Uprising or Tron Legacy. There you go. Well, and thankfully, stateside in, in the U.S., um, the Tron like, Light Cycle run will debut at Magic Kingdom. Um, not sure if it'll be 2021 or going to 2022, but um, that'll be in Tomorrowland. So it's nice that that will be uh, more familiar to, to folks on the stateside too, Joe. I hope so. I sure do hope so. I know they're, you know, unfortunately due to this madness we're all living through, they're, you know, delayed a bit, but hopefully we'll be, we'll be on that. And hopefully I'll get a call. I've heard that I'll be getting a call at some point about that. So I will look forward to that. Hey, if you could develop some new uh, scores for the queue at the very least, that would be really great because we, we <laughs> at notably Disney like queue music and I think Tron fits in very nicely there. Yes, there's there's an hour. I mean, there's an hour plus of uh, there's I think uh, about thirty minutes of new music leading into the ride that's based on Tron themes. You know, the um, the whole idea behind the ride is that it's an Olympic style event. Like Sam has gone back to the grid and he's having a light cycle like Olympics. You know, and so there's all this Tron music that uses the themes and sounds and ideas yet it's a little bit more orchestral a little bit more olympic if i could dare to use that word which probably means john williams you know but there's this resounding you know olympian uh, quality to walking up yet it's the tron music it's amazing and then once you get in and are are taken into the grid you know there are variations on all your favorite Tron cues uh, while you're in the queue. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to share that stateside. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Well, your enthusiasm is palpable. I know I'm excited for it. <laughs> and I want to definitely um, kind of continue this theme of relationship building as a mechanism for really producing wonderful projects. So you mentioned Lady in the Tramp, and of course, um, you um, you mentioned the connection there being Charlie Bean. I, I'd love to learn more about um, this venture because this is another example of Disney kind of reimagining a classic. And you had the really cool role, role of composing the score. And and I know you've talked about this in other spaces too, but I, what I really appreciate about it is it has the sensibility of a classical score when you're thinking about Lady who's more refined. And then there's this jazzy spirit and grunginess associated with Tramp. And ultimately there's a more contemporary sound to it. You have a lot of musical styles in the score. Can you talk about how you uh, accounted for all these different flavors into a package that ultimately feels very cohesive? Yes, that is that is a great question, and and I appreciate you listening into some other interviews I've done about that. I've spoken at length about like each of those individual styles, and I'm I'm excited to to chat about how we brought it together because that really, you know, what you're talking about right now is 
you know, the wide-angle lens look of this movie, which is uh, very important to talk about, which is, this is a very American movie. It's an American movie in the time and the place and the characters, and I, I dare I say the diversity of the cast and the diversity of cultures that we're showing on screen. Uh, to me, that is... Uh, I, forgive me if I sound sentimental or, or silly here, but I really do feel that is the uniquely American thing is not that there is there is no one America. There are so many different Americas. And, you know, whenever you talk about, you know, it's funny I hear people talk about, oh, you know, like America, there's all this these problems right now and, and people fighting and infighting and disharmony and disunity and whatnot. And. Uh, you know, they say, oh, I want to move to Australia or, or Norway or whatever. You know, there is nowhere else where you have this amazing experiment, which is all these different cultures and backgrounds and histories, some of them very dark and some of them very sad and, and depressing and 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 troublesome that, you know, we're all trying to figure out a way to live together. And so dare I say, uh, maybe I'm zooming out a little too far, but I think musically for me, I really wanted this film to be a bit of a capsule of America that we have all these important kinds of musics in there that defined America, you know, especially jazz, which, we, which I think is also important to, to, to acknowledge as black American music, that there is this music that that without America would not exist. And, and, you know, you could point to the tragedy of this music existing at all that, you know, that the, all these black Americans were brought here from across the world. Um, but what's so fascinating about that is all these different cultures, African, Cuban, uh, certain South American cultures, you know, they all came together in new Orleans, in the South of America. And, birthed black American music, which, which is one of the, one of the only things uniquely American about our music. You know, we have rock and roll, we have blues, we have black American music, we have jazz, you know, those are, that's what American music is. So I wanted to reflect, especially because this film was taking place in the 1910s in that early part of uh, American history, I wanted to reflect that music. And so that was really important. But then also I wanted to reflect the, you know, the Americana element, the orchestral element, the, the Aaron Copeland element. And I apologize. I'm sure I'm getting certain things wrong, but, you know, I hope you could tell that, you know, I'm trying to be authentic and genuine in, in terms of representation, but it really is important to me that, you know, that, uh, that, that film, just like the way we saw all these different cultures and emotions represented on screen that the same thing happened musically that we and and that's why it was so important for me to be as authentic as possible which is why we went to new orleans new orleans and worked with certain musicians and man i can't thank disney and 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 mitchell and kaylin and all the you know and charlie of course and brigham our producer you know we everyone got on board this idea and i think that kind of like tron you know we put a lot of early work into this charlie and i our, our old neighbors, he, we're no longer neighborhood neighbors. He, he lives still lives, doesn't live too far from me, but we used to literally be a few blocks from each other. And every once in a while we'd go to this neighborhood dive bar called the drawing room here in Los Feliz. And so we, you know, we'd walk in and it was a scene and it was a divey scene and it was very humbling to be in, but we would go in there and have a couple of beers and just talk about lady in the tramp. <laughs> maybe, maybe that sounds terrible, you know, kids movie talking it out over beers, but that's really, 
really what we did. We we wanted to, and that, again, we started that very early on, and we developed this idea of American music that we wanted to represent American music and what made American music so unique. We wanted to represent that as best we could on screen, and we came up with all these ideas there, the idea of going to New Orleans, the idea of of working with musicians who could represent that culture and and to lay that in the score and use that, obviously, not only musically, like I've been talking about these last few minutes, but also like you had hinted at, Brett, um, dramatically. You know, you have this, uh, the, the the two main characters, Lady and the Tramp, you know, what easier way to describe them than through music? Lady is, you know, more cultured, more refined. Her music's written down. Her music comes from a more Eurocentric uh, point of view. Tramp lives on the street. His music is improvised. His music is made up on the spot. He's witty. He's he's shooting from the hip, you know. So uh, it was a case where music not existed not only as uh, as music itself, but as a dramatic tool. And and so it, I view that film as probably one of my most successful in that regard because I was able to. Thank again, thanks to Charlie and, and everyone at Disney for supporting me on that. Thanks to them and the great musicians, obviously. Um, thanks to them, I was able to use music, not only just have fun recording amazing musicians and all these different bands, but also it was a real part of that film. As I like to say, the music had a seat at the table in that film and was a part of the drama of that film. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't something added later on over the course of six weeks. It was something developed over, you know, a year plus. It was really, really wonderful to to see come together. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all that. And, and you talk about the time period of the film being the 1910s. And the animated film is also supposed to be early 20th century. But what's different about it is the notion of Oliver Wallace's score, which is great, but being very reflective of the 1950s in terms of the style, whereas yours, there's, I think, a bit more of, um, there's a timelessness, but also um, very um, illustrative of that particular piece in time, um, which is uh, allows for a distinction, but I think uh, one that's well appreciated um, for, for viewers of the film. Wow, you, you really hit the nail on the head there in terms of how I like to approach uh, scores in general, you know, and this is something I learned from Daft Punk and, and so many other collaborators is trying to make something timeless, you know, trying to boil things down to their simplest elements and really try to make it something feel like it's of the film. But at the same time to, you know, to, to make it feel like it, there was no other, uh, possible conclusion that this music had to exist there's no there it could be nothing else i think that's you know love him or hate him you know and i I love him personally but uh i you know i think that's the best thing about hans zimmer's music is that you know when you hear time for instance we could all pick on that piece of music but when you hear that you hear those notes and there is no other possible note combination to get that like that is it felt like he discovered that piece of music i think that's something that i try to do when I work on films is I try to discover the music of that film rather than forcibly create, if, if that makes sense. And if we do it right, you know, you get a little bit of that sense, like you said, but something timeless yet also, wow, this is like exactly what this film need. You, you know, like if you're doing it right and you're really in tune with a filmmaker, I, I think you have the potential to do that. I, I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm bragging about it. I'm, I'm saying it for exactly the opposite. I need to remind myself why I do it. And it really is a tall task. It is something very hard, but I, I 
I wouldn't have as much fun doing it if it was easy, I should say, I guess. <laughs> For sure. Well, and it's a comforting score as well. There's something that's, and that isn't meant in a, um, a simplistic manner, but particularly the the cues with Lady, it's just very easy and simple and and just endearing. And then with some of the, the Tramp music, which is, I think, as you mentioned, very improvisational, very reflective of the New Orleans jazz, there are distinctions, but I also think of Randy Newman's work for Princess and the Frog, which is also set in New Orleans um, and has a definitely a very Newman-esque flavor, but um, kind of carrying across that that authentic jazz feel, which I think you do very nicely, but in a different manner with your with your uh, portrayal of Tramp. Yeah, you know, I talk about this when I, you know, to mention a film you mentioned earlier, something like Only the Brave. I think. You know, there's something interesting when I don't know something, um, I use it as an opportunity to develop something unique. So you, you talk about jazz. I am I make no claims to be a jazz musician. I could comp some chords on the piano and not make a complete fool of myself, but I'm making a bit of a fool of myself if I were to do that. Um, and so I make no claims to be an authentic representative of that music. So I take it as an opportunity for me to learn, but also there's something about me that makes me unique as an artist. And I wouldn't be asked to be part of a film like that if I didn't have something valuable to contribute as an artist. So I view that as an opportunity to do something unique. And I mentioned Only the Brave. Similarly with that score, Joe Kaczynski came to me and said, I this needs to be a guitar score. That's all these firefighters listen to, guitar music. They listen to Dirk Bentley and Amer you know, American country and rock and roll. You know, this, and 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 he even mentioned, you know, okay, their their firehouse was this corrugated steel building. So can you use some dobro because it's a steel guitar? You know, I want to hear that rattle. You know, <laughs> that the steel gives you. And I'm sitting here scared out of my mind because, like, when I pick up a guitar, I play like three notes, and like that's all I could play. You know, I, I you know I know the instrument as an arranger, as an orchestrator, but if I need guitar, I call up my friend Andrew. I call I call up George Deering and Andrew Sinewick to you know help me to help me get some guitar recorded i don't play it myself so a lot of the guitar and only the brave i played myself or my assistant played or we just had a bunch of guitars around that we were just picking at and plucking at and 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 re-recording and transposing and reversing and doing this crazy stuff too it was an opportunity to a learn but also be un be unique because i didn't think about guitar like a guitar player does. So I'm going to come up with different things. One of my favorite cues from the film, the very opening of the film is I remember distinctly uh, recording that uh, with one of my dear friends, a guitarist. Uh, and we, I just remember layering different acoustic guitars down. And he, uh, you know, I remember the first time I came to his studio, this was years before I said, Oh, wow, this is an amazing studio. Um, I have this idea for you. I want to play. Do you have a piano? And he said, oh, crap. No, I don't. So he, he put in – the next time I went, he put in like a Roland electronic piano in the, in the corner so that, you know, hey, if Joe has an idea or, you know, and, and uh, or any other composer who comes over, they could play it to him. So I said, oh, I have this idea. Hold on. You know, and I worked it out. I played it for him. Can you play that? And we just started layering these different ideas I had and that formed this really cool guitar cloud that I don't think I would have thought of if I was a guitarist just because it's not very guitar-y, <laughs> but it was something unique. So to wrap that all up, that idea up, I think that's, you know, there's about leading the tramp. I'm, I was trying to be authentic, but at the same time, I wasn't afraid of 
taking that authentic music and being unique with it, if that makes any sense at all. I hope it does. It, it totally does. And you're, in addition to being a great composer, you're also a mind reader because my next question was about only the brave, but you, <laughs> and I literally have a note here saying uh, it blends some nice, ac gentle acoustic guitar with some heart pounding percussion and electric guitar. Um, I, I think that's one of the nice things about that score is there's that, you know, that South one Southwestern sensibility, um, of, you know, being in more of a, you know, a deserty country area, but also that just intense lifestyle of being a firefighter. And, and there's that just dynamic energy that comes through in the score. So there's these, um, almost seemingly polar opposite, uh, flavors but it but it comes together into a, a score that is just so evocative and ultimately um reflective of the intensity of the the life the the careers of of those firefighters i'm i'm so excited to hear you say that because i i you know most of the time i hear a score hear something i've worked on and I think of like, oh, I do this so much better now or I do it differently. And that includes, you know, probably something I delivered last week. I'm always trying to get better and better. And don't get me wrong. I certainly think that about certain things of Only the Brave. But at the same time, that is something I'm really proud of because of exactly what you said. There was something, you know, there are all these different colors uh, and, and tones, but they were designed for that film and came together in such a beautiful way. And thanks to Joe and, and the producers who really guided me through that you know and and something interesting about that film there's really only one theme there's really only one thematic idea and there are different arrangements of it you know the 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 variation of that score is more about the variations of the theme rather than different themes and I remember that being something very difficult that you know it was very hard to get all the producers on board with this idea that we're going to have this one theme and we're going to be obsessed about it um and even i had some trouble i said oh god do i need to write some more so I, I, there were times where i would take a whole week i mean i there, i have so many sketches from that film that are on the cutting room floor that no one will ever hear but there are brand new themes and different ideas and different you know because I was afraid maybe we didn't have – I started to believe what the producers were saying. Like, oh, Joe, do we need more themes? And I'm like, oh, let me try some. Ah, you know. But at the end of the day, it was Joe who really kept us just locked on, like I said, that very narrow path, that very narrow target. And it really just needed that one theme because these firefighters, I mean, they're so obsessive about their goal. You know, they are um, – and it kind of reminded me of of me, not that not that what I do is nearly as dangerous or I guess one could argue nearly as useful to the public good as what a firefighter does. But the idea that, you know, you get up every day and, and you 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 put everything on the line for this singular goal that no one else can understand that you're just obsessed with this thing. I remember being a kid and being obsessed with music and people, you know, uh, even my family. So, Hey, don't you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, make some money? Like, why are you want to be a, you know, a broke musician, but no, you know, I was obsessed and I still am obsessed. And I think that is one facet of the score that, I don't talk that I haven't talked about that much is that obsessiveness that uh, that kind of singular mindset and uh, and how I tried to make it more varied because that was a, a note I kept getting. But really, at the end of the day, that's what that film needed, that obsessive score, if that makes sense, you know. Well, it worked. And it's um, <laughs> it's definitely a highly underrated film, too. It, it amazes me that it, it really underperformed at the box office because it's a great drama and so 
um, captivating um, with great performances too. So I highly encourage folks to check it out. Me too. I you, you really you really summed it up right. There's it's a beautifully made film, and in every regard, I feel like say what you will about the score. I can't talk about that too much more anymore. But I, the acting's great. The visuals are great. The effects are great. It's it's just a thrill, and it's a story of redemption, and it's it's just a beautiful story. No matter how it ends, I think there's so much beauty in it. You know, it's it's well worth a watch. Yeah, you got that right. Well, let's uh, begin to wrap up. I want to make sure that um, we know what to, what can we expect from you in in the months or year to come. What projects are on the docket for you? I'm the luckiest guy on the planet, man. I you know I just uh, wrapped up a film for Sundance uh, called Prisoners of the Ghostland with an amazing filmmaker named uh, Sion Sono, who's a Japanese filmmaker who has made tons of movies since the '80s. So for someone like me to work with that sort of filmmaker um, with that sort of artistic presence and, and background, it was a real honor. Um, and, and it was a real challenge in the best way possible because it was a different way of working, especially now in COVID times. You know, first of all, he's in Tokyo and I'm here. So that's a challenge in, in and of itself. But we can't just get on a plane, at least safely anyway. We can't just get on a plane. And it was a, it was a quick turnaround. I got brought in actually fairly late. But that was a case where I think it worked really well because that filmmaker, he just has such a taste and a style that, you know, it's undeniable what he's trying to achieve. So I just got swept up in that and I was able to, I feel, deliver a really unique score. And that actually premieres uh, this week at Sundance. My good, my goodness, we're, we're all going to be at Sundance as much as one can be, of course, digitally. Um, so that's coming out this week. Tomorrow, I have a film coming out on Netflix called Finding Ohana. I'm really proud of that one. It is basically... Um, and, and, and sorry, basically is a bad word. It's, it's, it, you know, the inspiration is, is Goonies in Hawaii, but it's, it's obviously so much more than that. It is an adventure, family adventure film for the whole family, an incredible filmmaker named Jude Wang. I think she is someone to watch out for. She's going to do, be doing amazing stuff. I just hope she doesn't lose my number because I, I just think she's so awesome. And then, uh, yeah, in April, I, I, uh, Shadow and Bone, that's, that's a big one. I think, I think, you know, there are a lot of fans of the book. There are a lot of fans of the cast, it, and 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 what can I say? It came out great. I cannot wait for people to experience it. I, Eric Heisler, our showrunner, is amazing, and Lee Bardugo, our our the the author, is awesome, and Sean Levy, who produced. I mean, uh, you know, it says something um, that I speak in such glowing terms about my collaborators, but I. I really try to have those kind of collaborators. That's my goal. The more I could have collaborators that I could unabashedly praise, um, the better. Um, so that's that's what's next. I'm I'm incredibly proud of all of it, and I can't wait to share it with everyone. That's fantastic. And and this episode will be released um, after the debut of the the two projects that you mentioned at the top of that. So um, so yeah, we can definitely enjoy uh, that new work as it's just debuted and. Um, just that's great. I'm I'm very excited for you. And um, before, as we conclude, I want to make sure I ask you some Disney music related questions. <laughs> Please, yeah. Well, uh, so first off, Joe, is there a Disney soundtrack that, that you listened to most while growing up? Definitely. You know, I think when I was a kid, I watched Aladdin on repeat, basically. So, you know, um, that was, that was really cool to see the new one, to see them develop it, you know, say what you will about the quote unquote new Disney movies. I think it, I think it is just so 
whether you love them or hate them, I just I just think there's so much value in revisiting art from the past. I, I unabashedly am a fan of doing that. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully uh, we get better and better at doing that. I know that there's a lot of criticism out there of Lady and the Tramp, but I'm very proud of it. And I think I think similarly with these Disney revisits, I think there's a lot of art to be had there. But, you know, also how awesome is it to see Will Smith? playing the role of genie after seeing Robin Williams playing the role of genie. I think it just, it reminds us to, to me, they, they're, they're, they're complimentary that you watch Will Smith, you enjoy it. And then you say, Oh, Robin Williams was so good too. I'm going to go watch that. You know? So I remember before uh, or right after seeing the new, new version, just immediately going to see the old version because I wanted to revisit, you know, Robin Williams in that role. So anyway, yes, that was, that was the soundtrack of my childhood, basically that. And of course others like beauty of the beast and little mermaid, but, but Aladdin more so than anything else. Can't go wrong with Aladdin by any means. (laughs) What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Oh man, who can deny Randy Newman? I mean, Rand- every song Randy Newman has basically gets stuck in my head. But but the other day I was walking around the house and I just had you know some Toy Story, you got a friend in me in my head. And um, but then you know it's interesting when we're talking about Randy Newman and Pixar. I think there's just so so interesting to think about. Uh, first of all, we could talk about hours about this in and of itself. But the Newman family, right? You have obviously Alfred and and Lionel, but then you have Randy, you know, with Toy Story. But then I think all the time about you know Nemo and Thomas Newman's work. You know, it's it, and and how how these these guys can be related yet so incredibly different, yet also so incredibly uh amazing for disney culture and disney films and have something i, I don't know it, it, it's something that uh someone smarter than me could probably talk about for hours upon perhaps you've talked about it on other uh other podcasts you've had <laughs> but that's something i think about a lot <laughs> yeah no their body of work for disney is an immense as well and um this may be a good segue to the third music question is is there a disney film that you feel has the most underrated music so maybe it doesn't get as much attention but you personally really enjoy oh yeah definitely i i i don't know i think i think people may or may not like this answer i don't know like i think prince of egypt is fantastic and and i guess i don't know prince of egypt made probably billions of dollars and is perfectly successful but i think i you know i would love to see that revisited i would love to see that you know that um talked about some more i just think that's a really really cool film and a really cool uh score and uh you know that's one of them there gosh there are many more i'm sure i could uh think of like um oh let's see i think wally doesn't get talked about enough i think wally's amazing and i i know wally gets talked about all the time i still don't think it's enough i think that the score is incredible i think the concept i think that is such a resonant you know right the concept of humanity trying to save itself with robots and you know humanity being reduced to an overweight space cruise ship i just i just laugh when i think of that just uh the parallels it's a little scary i think how you know uh, you know wally's slowly gonna turn into a documentary or something <laughs> but uh, i think that's a great that's a great film and uh yeah <laughs> Oh, that's 
<laughs> I have one that's not that's not PG rated. Uh, let me think. There's another. <laughs> Both stories I just thought of are, are somewhat PG thirteen. Um, so let me think of a better one. Um, oh, I, you know what? I could think of. Ah, oh, man, I could. Here, here's here's one for you. And and this one, I I hope that some of your audience is lucky enough to to experience this one day. I'll give you two stories. One is, um, just uh, knowing Booker White, who is the who is the librarian behind, you know, Disney music. So he's not only my copyist when I do scores for just about any film, he and his team, they're, 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 they're handwriting the music and helping me orchestrate that sort of thing. Or not handwriting. I shouldn't say they, they're notation in the computer, but he also runs the archives for Disney music, you know? So, you know, every time I'm on the lot, I just go visit him because, you know, who knows what you're going to find. You're just going to find some handwritten score sitting there. And he was incredibly instrumental in helping me with Lady and the Tramp. He got Lady and the Tramp out of the archives and digitized it for me. So I could, ref- I have, you know, in front of me in the studio, I have, you know, the original cat song and the original La La Lou, you know, not the handwritten, but I have a copy of the handwritten version in front of me. So that's one thing. But then I'll never forget Charlie Bean because he's an animator by, by training. That was his, you know, he was giving me the tour or the unofficial tour of how the, the animations were made. So that we, uh, the music department at Disney, as well as my temporary office when we were doing lady and the tramp was in what's called the ink and paint building. And that's, it's named that way because that's exactly what it was. It was the, where they inked and, and painted the, the, the animation. And so, but it has multiple wings and so, uh, you know, I was, I was looking at the layout of this building, like, what the heck is this? So I, I asked Charlie, like, I was like, Hey, what's the history here? So, so there's, and there's also this tunnel that goes underneath, um, the path outside, you know, there's beautiful green space on the Disney lot, but there's this weird dark tunnel that I remember. Why is this dark tunnel here? <laughs> this is so scary on the Disney lot. They have some pumps down there and everything. It's a tunnel between the ink and paint building and the old animation building because if it was raining out, which granted is very rare, but they would have to hand carry the, the animated cells over to the ink and paint building to get inked. So they built this tunnel. Walt had this tunnel built so that if it was raining, they could obviously without water <laughs> getting onto the animation frames, get to the ink and paint building. Uh, then Charlie showed me where their editorial suite was, was where the... Um, Brett, you might remember this. What what are those giant things where they would photograph the multi-plane? Uh, well, okay, there you go. So so that so where editorial was on Lady and the Tramp was right down the hall from where everything was photographed. Um, and Charlie showed me that in the doorway there were two sets. Uh, you could look at them on either side. They were almost like all around the door frame. I'll try to describe it. It was almost like the the air conditioning fans you have in your car, but you couldn't aim them, right? They, they were just slots. And he said they would always have air blowing out of them. So the ink would have dried, right? So so on the cell of the frame, the ink, the, the ink dried, but dust can accumulate. So when they walked to get the, the, the cells photographed, you would walk through multiple sets of these doorways that had the air blowing. So it would blow the dust off of the cells so they'd get photographed uh, without any dust on them so that they'd be clean. So, uh, my goodness, I, I'm sure someone much smarter than me with more Disney background knows all this already and can tell you some more. But for me, for little old me, getting that and then being 
you know, in that same space, my head was basically exploding the whole time. It was amazing. So yes, that was, that was really cool. <laughs> Sounds like it. I'm, I'm really jealous. <laughs> One day we'll have you on the lot. If, if you haven't been there already, it would be great to have you over. Thanks. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting too, that you mentioned the tunnel because that, if I'm not mistaken, that was actually used as a set piece for alias on ABC, which Disney um, did of course. So I did not know that. Yeah. It's been Amazing. used in different settings. So Amazing. I'm going to go watch alias again, <laughs> try to catch it. There you go. Um, Joe, how can listeners follow you on social media? You mentioned some of your projects, uh, new projects that are debuting, but if they want to follow you, how can they do that? Absolutely. I've had ever since I was in college, I think I've had the website, joecomposer.com, J-O-E composer.com. And that's my handle just about everywhere on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you could find me generally, Facebook, Joe Composer. And, you know, I'm very bad at social media. I know there are a lot of film composers who are way better at uh, being followed and posting stuff, but I try to post, you know, relevant stuff there when I can. And, um, and so, yeah, you can find me there. You could tweet at me and hopefully I'll respond. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Brett, thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun talking about my work with you and, and it's clear you, you know, a lot of it. I appreciate it. I really, really means a lot to me. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Uh, it's been an absolute blast having you on and, um, I hope you continue to do not only work in general, um, in Hollywood, but also for Disney because, um, I, I've certainly appreciated and um, valued the work that you've handled so far. And um, yeah, well, I guess we'll hear more of it uh, stateside once the Tron Light Cycle run debuts. So can't wait. Yeah. Even more to look forward to. Thank you again, Joe. Thank you, Brett. Thanks again to Joe Trapanese for his time and his talent. As mentioned, some of his latest work can be heard in films like Finding Ohana on Netflix and Prisoners of the Ghostland, which recently debuted at Sundance. My best to Joe on his future endeavors, and hope you enjoyed my conversation with him. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.